Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here... Inside your ears. ...to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is Comfort Films. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 47 of Comfort Films. This is our third week discussing straight to the sequels. Movies that we love so much, we go straight to the sequel. Yeah, I it's can also our that. September series. I like how it's a lot of S's. And so far, we've discussed second movies. Dark Knight is actually the highest rated sequel on IMDb's Top 250. And I think that's a justified uh, user rating. We both love this movie. It came out in July of 2008. So it's about 14 years old at this point. It's like a child. <laughs> it's, you know, junior high. It's a it's such a great movie. We've seen it so many times. Oh, I mean, yeah. we saw this when it first came out together. We saw it on, you know, video at home like a million times. We've watched it on TV a bunch of times. We went back for the, I guess it was a 10-year re-release on IMAX mm -hmm. and saw it on IMAX because we hadn't seen it in IMAX for the first time. And that was an amazing experience. Oh, yeah. The way the whole thing opens up. I mean, it's night oh, and day. It's great. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, we love this one. I think that, you know, we're not alone. No. <laughs> I feel like this is pretty universally acclaimed. It won awards. It was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Like. Uh, Heath Ledger's Joker performance is iconic, and he won an Oscar for that, posthumously, unfortunately, because he passed away after this was filmed. Uh, but yeah, we we love this one, and we think that it represents kind of the best of what a sequel can be. It takes a great story, it improves on it, it deepens what you know about the characters already, and this one is just damn exciting, too. There's so much action in it. There's so much, so many stunt sequences and things that just keep you, like, amped up the whole time. So, yeah, we're looking forward to talking about this one. Hopefully we can find some interesting things to say. <laughs> I, it would be difficult to find something uninteresting to say about this one. We keep coming up with new things that we think about when we see it. So that's what keeps it fresh. Yeah, I mean, every time I see a movie and I get something new, I know that there's something very special about it. With Dark Knight, there is so much more that I managed to find in the film this time. And it was always there. It's not like it just showed up. Yeah. But the biggest thing that I would say in this film is duality. There is always something on the other side. And it really connects very well with Empire Strikes Back. Because just in the same way we saw the light in Luke Skywalker and we saw the dark in Darth Vader, in this film, every single character has the light and the dark. There isn't one character in the film that you can say is one way or the other. With I mean, I'd say the exception of the Joker because of the body count. But then you could argue, well, what made the Joker the Joker? And that's an enormous question that, that we will get into. That point was intentionally not explored. Yes. Um, because they wanted him to kind of be an enigma. Not Edward Enigma, but <laughs> an enigma. It's like this page was intentionally left blank. <laughs> Perfect. That's, yeah, that's the best way I think we can explain the Joker in this film. But I 
you know, even looked at the names, okay? So Harvey Dent, I mean, let's start there. That's the easiest, right? So we have Harvey Dent, who everyone is saying is the white knight. He is the hero. You know, this is the guy that you always wanted. And then as we go through the film, we actually find him on the other side of the story, right? Mm -hmm. It's either you die the hero or live long enough to see yourself as the villain. Yeah, or see yourself become the villain. He did. He did. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we talked about this, uh, you know, several times over the course of watching this movie again and prepping for the show. We noticed that, you know, it isn't like a total turn that's just like a black and white thing with him where it's like one day he's great and the next day he's evil. It's kind of a slow kind of slide over to the other side. So it's funny that you're saying what you're saying because... Yes, even when characters are telling us this is the White Knight, this is the good guy, this is Harvey Dent, this is who can save Gotham the right way, he is working within the system, but he keeps slowly trying to push out of that because he knows he's not achieving what he wants to. I think that the first time that we see him really saying, like, I can't do this, you know, the way that I'm supposed to or the way that people think I'm supposed to, is after the assassination attempt on the mayor where we think that Gordon has been killed and he gets in the ambulance to check out this guy who was kind of the accomplice of the Joker and sees the Rachel Dawes pin on this guy's chest. Yeah, that's how you push the button on Harvey Dent yeah. is through Rachel Dawes. Yeah. That's, that's what we've seen. And it's like when they find that weakness strategically the joker goes for it the joker is a master manipulator big time you know and i mean the joker you know i'm just going to dive into it this is a discussion we have been having and i subscribe to the theory that the joker is a former government operative a former cia operative because he has weapons knowledge he is able to get a group together. He is able, it, it seems mostly people from Arkham. He's able to form a small army. He knows the power of information and giving people little bits of it. He just parcels it out. I mean, we see that very clearly in the opening robbery scene. Everything about this guy is calculated, but he gives you this pure chaos. So it makes you wonder you know, what is underneath the exterior? I mean, the Joker looks punk rock. You know, you can see from the green hair and, you know, the way he wears like this purple suit with disdain. It makes you feel like at one point he did have to wear a suit to work. And it's like he's doing the same type of work that he used to do with, you know, overthrowing governments, countries, regimes. But now he's just wearing, you know what I mean, this purple suit. And he wears that shirt that almost looks like a snake skin and yeah. the green vest. He really makes it funny, you know, because it's like this is the most intelligent man in the entire film. It's almost like a fool character mm. that you find in Shakespeare. The, the things that the Joker says throughout the film, if you listen just to what he's saying, he's giving us truth. But you're like, how can this twisted evil character be giving us any truth when we don't see any humanity in him at all? 
But he doesn't always give you truth no. either. And I mean, that's, well, he might give us truth, but when he's talking to the other characters, he's almost constantly bullshitting. I mean, when he's telling the story of how he got his scars, we hear it two different ways. And I think we can guess that neither one of those is accurate. Uh, and then he does start to tell Batman in his last scene again how he got the scars. And I'm sure that'll be a totally new fabrication. And he, when he's talking to Harvey Dent, when Harvey Dent has had, you know, his face burned off and they're in the hospital scene, he tells Harvey Dent, do I look like a man with a plan? You know, which is funny because no, he doesn't, but he is. I mean, he he's downplaying the fact that he has been planning things really intricately the whole time he says he's an agent of chaos yeah he is an agent of chaos but he works from kind of an organized place otherwise he couldn't pull off what he pulls off you know and it's you have to question like does he believe what he's saying there or is he just saying it to convince harvey i lean toward option two um, because, again, the manipulation is, like, his key thing. He is excellent at manipulating people. He knows how to turn somebody into a guided missile to shoot them at what he wants to destroy. And with Harvey, who is a guy who cares about justice and has always been working for justice, to say to him, justice doesn't exist, there is none, it's a construct, and I work to uncover constructs, you know, that takes Harvey to a place where he becomes convinced that the only fairness and morality comes from chance, and he completely starts leaning on his, you know, 50-50 shot at everything. I mean, I think it's really interesting that he had that coin, that double-headed silver dollar coin, at the beginning of the movie, and he's always used that, you know, and has told people, you know, well, it's not always luck, or I make my own luck. Right. Um, all these types of things that he says, because, you know, he's convincing people that he's given it a 50-50 chance, but he always wins. Once he has this talk with the Joker, and he realizes that there is no justice, at least in his definition... He has the coin again, and this time it is, you know, there's a dark side and a light side, which goes back to your duality point, and now it does become a, a real 50-50 chance, and he goes about every other decision that he makes, you know, subscribing to whichever choice pops up on the coin is the way it should be, and it's the most fair option. In determining people's fates. Well, fairness is a very big issue in this movie. Everyone wants what is fair, but they all employ unfair means in order to obtain that fairness. Going back to the Joker and this idea of some type of CIA operative work, he uses the word jurisdiction when it comes up about Lao, the banker who has gone to Hong Kong, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, okay, this guy's using the word jurisdiction. You're like, hmm, you know, th this sounds like someone in government. This sounds like someone in law enforcement. This is a very educated person. 
And he also makes a, a joke about Lau because he's on the television set mm. because, you know, he's in Hong Kong where all the gangsters are in Gotham, yeah. you know, in, in this back room meeting. And he makes fun of the television. You know, he's like, oh, you guys are listening to the television, something like that. He it's... says if you go along with the television's plan. <laughs> I love that part. He, Oh, God, he's so good. Yeah. It, you know, it's like, yeah, if you go along with the television's plan, it, it really plants a seed for you there. Because the CIA, you know, there, there have been interviews where people have said that they've manipulated the media. And, you know, again, if you're talking about the television, that's a media that could be manipulated. And also, I saw an interview from a CIA operative who was active in the 70s and talked about how articles would be planted in the newspaper that were false. Mm -hmm. And it's just because they wanted to influence. They wanted to get the desired results. So they would, they would make this happen. And we actually even see that in this film. When they go to the crime scene and they find, quote, Harvey Dent, right? Which is one person's last name is Harvey and the other is Dent. Yes. Um, you know, you find them dead. And then they also find a newspaper which says that Mayor Garcia was assassinated today. Yes. By a high caliber bullet, which again, you know, I mean, this... <laughs> it's so weird, but it, it, it really goes back into like the, this kind of CIA conspiracy story because it kind of makes you think a little bit about like JFK mm -hmm. and what people have said there. Right. It was like a high caliber rifle took him out. So it's like I feel that they're really dropping some heavy hints that this character has this type of knowledge. And, you know, to bring up an entirely different franchise, but it comes to mind, it makes me think about the character of Silva in Skyfall, mm -hmm. uh, Javier Bardem. Because in that film, Javier Bardem works for MI6, and he is captured, and he has a cyanide tooth, which he tries to break while in, you know, interrogation. And when he does it, it cracks incorrectly and disfigures him. And in this, the Joker, with the scars that he has on his face, it makes you think that maybe we once had someone that was different. You know, I, I don't really ever think that our Joker character was some pure do-gooder. I, I don't think that at all. But I do think that maybe there was a semblance, possibly, of a moral compass. There, there was some more humanity. But I feel that he was caught, you know, in a lie in something that he was doing. And, you know, they cut up his face. And that caused him to snap. And that's right in line with all of the other characters that we see in this. Because, like, Batman had trauma. Yes. You know, and so it's like, okay, you know, through trauma, we change. Harvey Dent, trauma, he changes and you're like, okay. And again, when they try to look up the Joker's information, there is nothing. He is a ghost. And again, it makes you think, hmm, maybe this guy worked for the government at one point. And again, it's just the skill that he has to amass his own army, the coordination, the intelligence, the planning, you know, and also the way he even changes his uh, his uh, stature, you know, like a lot of times he's hunched over, but then he'll rise up. You know what I mean? It, it He knows how to intimidate. He knows how to get exactly what he wants out of people and he knows how to misdirect. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting because when you first brought this point up or this theory that I've never heard before. I, I've heard it, but it's like I never really I never looked into it. So I'm not going to take credit for coming up with it. But it was like it was something where I was like, oh, OK, you know, and I, I dove in. The first time I heard about it is here from you today. And if my, my knee jerk reaction is no, that can't be right. You know, because it just doesn't seem like, you know, this crazy guy could have that kind of a background and he's also in in my mind too young for that i can um, see that which may just be because it's heath ledger and i know how old heath ledger was at the time and you know with all the makeup and stuff on his face we don't necessarily know how old this character is supposed to be we do have the one scene where he does not have the makeup on um, which is when he is in my opinion horribly disguised as one of the cops doing the 21 gun salute or whatever at the former commissioner's kind of public funeral service i think he looks scarier there than when he actually has the clown makeup. i kind of do too um so you know he just he's kind of baby-faced and so for me it's just like could this guy really have like been this government operative gone through all this stuff and then also you know now have had a psychotic break at some point and you know does this all work i don't know but the fact is it is open to interpretation so i think that they left it open so that you can kind of build your own backstory here and i just think that that one could be just as good as any other with the amount of support that's in it there is certainly a lot of thematic use here of government type stuff like we have a post 9-11 kind of a feel going on there's a specific scene um where uh batman is actually standing in front of like the debris of a destroyed building that looks like it really the image brings to mind you know those images of the world trade center after it collapsed and people you know working at the site So I think that's definitely there. And this is about terrorism. I mean, there's so many terrorist acts happening in this movie. And terrorism has been like such a a concern and a hot button issue since 2001. Um, And I think that they really play with that idea and like with security and surveillance. Like there's a whole thing with that. It's very interesting, you know, that they can take all of these themes, which I would consider very important to us and are in the contemporary world in which we live and apply it to the superhero movie, which makes it so um, topical in a way that I don't really think of Batman as being that topical. No. You know, we did a show on the 1989 Tim Burton Batman which was episode 22. Um, We love that movie. Yeah, Jack Nicholson rules. Yeah, I mean, he's great. But I will also say it's a very different take on the Batman and Joker story than what we're getting here with Christopher Nolan. You know, Nolan has made a lot of kind of serious movies. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of what he, he does. And he kind of really, for me, at the time that this came out redefined what a superhero movie could be Uh, because this isn't your superhero movie that we grew up with 
Like, I remember watching Superman when I was a really little kid. When Superman, to me, is kind of like the ultimate iconic superhero. And Batman is really up there, too, although he's quite a different type of superhero because he's a regular person or a regular billionaire <laughs> um, <laughs> who doesn't have any innate superpowers. You know, he's not from a different planet. He wasn't bitten by a radioactive spider. You know, he doesn't have these types of weird things that, like, inside his body makes him super. He's super because <laughs> he's a rich guy. And that was one of my favorite things with the Ben Affleck Batman when they ask him, is, was it Barry that asked him what his power is? I think so. And he says, I'm rich. She's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, that is a certain kind of power. Um, and, you know, having a lot of people at your disposal to do things, you know, to do things for you, like build the suit, build the cars, you know, have access to fly to Hong Kong and, you know, be picked up by a plane without it stopping. You know, these types of things are... Certainly not in my achievability range. So, you know, I, I just think that it's really cool, though, to see this same character in such a different kind of a movie. Because we watched 89 Batman. We loved 89 Batman. And honestly, I might have thought, like, I've seen everything the Batman story has to offer, and then Nolan comes in and kind of turns it into, like, this really gritty kind of crime drama uh, with a lot of psychological underpinnings. And the funny thing is, we were talking tonight, that Batman is kind of not the most important thing in this movie. I mean, what he represents is important because... It catalyzes what's happening with the Joker and with Harvey Dent. But Harvey Dent, in some ways, is kind of like the protagonist of this movie. And once he turns and becomes the antagonist, he's just as much the antagonist of himself as he is of Batman. Yeah, when we see Harvey Dent's fall, it hurts. It really hurts as an audience member to see that because everything that they've been building up in the film is that Harvey Dent will clean up the city by using the law and every single person you know I mentioned this earlier that is trying to bring justice fairness is breaking the law Batman is a vigilante right Jim Gordon yeah, at the beginning of this movie, we see, you know, Jim Gordon, that's the head of major crimes, which is a very big job. And it's like, he also is committing crimes yeah. by working with the Batman, by letting Batman go into these scenes, do whatever he needs to do. Harvey Dent, right? Our white knight. He is getting his hands dirty from the beginning yeah. by having these meetings with Jim Gordon and Batman. You know, it's like Jim Gordon comes to Harvey Dent and he asks for a subpoena. <laughs> we'll give Harvey Dent all the information to actually do it. There is so much corruption in this film. And these are the good guys. Right. I mean, this doesn't even get into the fact that there are people on Gordon's major crimes team 
who are literally working with the Joker. So the good guys in this movie even have kind of this, the ends justify the means kind of attitude where they're willing to color outside the lines a little bit because they think it's serving the greater good. Um, I think that, you know, we see Harvey trying to even go further that direction when we get to that scene where he's interrogating this guy, um, Thomas Schiff, I believe is the name. I think that's right. Yeah. Of the accomplice. It's played by David Dastalmachian, who I hope I said his last name right. <laughs> um, excellent, excellent actor, character actor who we've seen in quite a few things. Sure. Including Dune, which we just did, mm-hmm. um, where he played Piter, um, which was great. So, yeah, in that scene, he's interrogating this guy, and he is, like, playing, you know, Russian roulette with the guy, pretty much, and flipping the coin and, and stuff, and he's intimidating him in a, in a brutal, kind of really unacceptable way, and Batman kind of has to step in and say, you can't do this. Because if people find out that you're doing this, then you lose your credibility, all the work that you've done goes out the window. All of the things that you've, all of the people that you've been able to put away, their cases get called into question. You know, it's a huge problem that Dent is so close to going off the rails. Well, Batman tells Dent this person is mentally ill. You know, he's been in Arkham. He doesn't know anything. He has no information to give you. And it's a very difficult scene because when people are, you know, provoked, you know, and when it's somebody close to you, again, with Rachel, he does not have any patience. This is when he's ready to cross the line. The Joker knows how to find that line. I mean, from the beginning of the film, the, the cops are crooked. Yeah. You know, we have people that are supposed to be working on finding Batman. They are just, like, doing nothing. They're just sitting around. They have, like, a possible suspect up as Elvis, you know. And Bigfoot. Yeah. Like and just... Abraham Lincoln for some reason. <laughs> I love that. That gave me a really big laugh right at the beginning. Every single person has a price. It may not necessarily be money, but again, the Joker knows how to find this. It Again, it's just a person that really knows to get what they want. They know how to get exactly what they want. They know exactly what they have to do. And I also feel with the Joker that his own frustration with, uh, you know, any system is that he does not feel that it's fair. And it gives you the idea that once upon a time, he was perhaps trying to fight for justice or fairness and found out that everything was crooked and that no one wanted to change it. So I think that's why the Joker comes out and just pushes so hard on Harvey Dent because it's like, oh, this is your white knight? He's not. I'm going to show you. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's a it's a point that he has to make. And it's the same thing with Batman. You know, he can't believe at the end of the movie that Batman didn't kill him. It's just like, you have this much self-righteousness. You have this much morality. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, the Joker has no faith in the human race whatsoever. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we have the fairy scene at the end of the film, you know, he says to Batman, when he's in interrogation, he says to Batman, you know, you think these people are good, but I'm going to show you. You know, I'm going to show you that these people are not good. You know, that's a paraphrase. He says it much more eloquently. <laughs> but, you know, that that is it. You know, the Joker is saying, you know, these civilized people that we're not a part of because we're on the outside, we're freaks. These people are nastier and more terrible than anyone. And that's been proved to us kind of over and over in this movie. I mean, we have, you know, the mob people who are the different gangs. And the thing you could say about them is at least they're honest about what they're doing. That's funny because, yeah, that's that's what's funny. Yeah, because then you have Lau who is posing as like a businessman and an accountant. But he's, you know, doing underhanded shit like the whole time. He's a crook. He makes a deal with the police that he'll turn everyone in that he works with if he gets to keep all the money. Yeah, because that's all he cares about. Yeah. A point which Joker makes again when he burns a massive stack of cash later on. Um, You know, at least they're honest about it, but they're still criminals and they're still, you know, doing all they can to take advantage of people. And they're buying, you know, cops and all this kind of stuff. And people who are the good guys in this have misplaced faith. Like, Gordon has misplaced faith in his own team, you know? When they're on the roof scene, which I love, it's the Dent, Gordon, Batman roof scene, uh, Gordon is freaking out because he's saying that Dent has crooked people in his office. And that that's how, you know, they found out about, you know, the different things. And that's not true. Like, or we don't know it's true. It could be that Dent has crooked people. But the really crooked people are on his own team. On Gordon's own team. And Dent has told him, I investigated people on your team. And I know how dirty they are. But Gordon refuses to see it. And because Dent worked in internal affairs or worked with internal affairs, he kind of has a taint on him to the cops because cops don't like people who investigate other cops. Well, Jim Gordon really does want to protect other police officers. He doesn't want to believe these things about, you know, his family. And we see that because when they're going to the hospital, they're actually in the car with Reese, right? And they're also in the car with Officer Berg, right? Yeah. And Berg has his wife in the hospital. And so it's in his interest to actually kill Reese because then he knows that the Joker will not blow up the hospital. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like Gordon gets this text from Batman and says, Berg and Ramirez have family members in the hospital. Berg is in the vehicle with them. You know, he manages, they manage to, you know, shut down Berg. You know, he calls them out. You know, that's neutralized. However, Gordon does not follow up on Ramirez, who seems to be the biggest leak from the beginning of the film. Yeah. And it's, it's terrifying because he has this willful blindness Mm -hmm. and and that is 
is is Gordon's, you know, failing. Yeah. I mean, it takes everything down. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought, I, you know, I always saw Gordon as heroic. Before, I did too. Until I watched it this time. And I really was thinking a lot differently about certain things. And there's this whole, you know, thing throughout the middle of the movie where Gordon fakes his own death mm-hmm. to everyone, like to his family, even. Yeah. And his, like, wife and children family, not just cop family. And he, you know, has decided in that case that his family's emotional state, including his children, you know, who could be horribly traumatized, that their emotions are less important than whatever cause he thinks he's contributing to by faking his death. And I think that that's pretty shitty, honestly. It's difficult because when you think about the Joker and all the information that he manages to get at every turn, you would think that maybe he has a bug in his house. Maybe there's a way that he could find out. You know, so I I do have a question mark there, but I do very much understand the selfish point. And I will follow up. And here's where I'll follow up. Gordon wants to be the quarterback, right? He's dead. But when the Joker is there, who comes out with the shotgun and is like, we're busting your ass, buddy. Yeah, yeah, he's the arresting officer. Yep. Um, And yeah, so he has to come out and like take the reins. And the whole story is, oh, it's because, you know... Gordon, Dent, and Batman are all working together to do this, but who, you know, who are the victims here? Like, who is not on the list of people who it's okay to victimize in order to handle this situation? Well, it's completely bullshit, because Gordon then becomes the commissioner because of this act. Yeah, he's rewarded. And then what's really ironic about it is that they think that because they were so smart that they outsmarted the Joker, but Mm. the Joker wanted to be in their prison. He wanted to be captured. He wanted the real Batman, you know, to come out. He says when he's in interrogation with Batman at the police station or at the major crimes unit, um, that he thought... At one point, perhaps it was Harvey Dent that actually was Batman. And what happened by him, the Joker, going through this exercise and allowing himself to be captured, he was actually able to find out who Batman was and wasn't. Because, you know, if it was Harvey Dent, right, he wouldn't have seen Harvey Dent. Like, you know, Harvey Dent would have come out of, you know, the van and been like, you're busted, buddy, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, it's just such a an 80s, like, cop move and, and like a really generic, stereotypical, beastie boy, sabotage video <laughs> kind of way with Jim Gordon. And the yeah, mustache. Yeah, and, he's, and it's <laughs> like, okay, buddy. So, it yeah, it, it is hard. There are people that are really fighting you know, to, to just, I don't know, serve their own needs. And we see it visually in the film as well. At the very beginning, when we're at the bank, we have a checkered floor. 
And light and dark is so important in this film, and it's present in everyone. Now, one of the characters we haven't talked about at all so far is Lucius Fox. Lucius literally means light, mm. right? And he works for who? The Dark Knight. Yes. Okay, and Lucius, this is really wild, okay? So, <laughs> Morgan Freeman played God and Bruce Almighty, and in many ways... Morgan Freeman's Lucius Fox is like God because he creates these things that you couldn't even imagine are real. He wields this power at the end with the sonar from the cell phones that no one could ever use. Mm -hmm. It's a power that is too great, you know, for any man, right? Yet he does wield it because it's for the greater good. Or is it because of his vanity that he wants to use that machine. Lucius Fox, we actually see him, okay, when he's with Mr. Reese, when Mr. Reese uncovers, the you know, there's secrets. <laughs> correct, right? He's in the room and he wants to blackmail, you know, Bruce Wayne. And then this is a much different color on Lucius Fox because, like a sly fox, he smiles and says, so you've uncovered that your billionaire employer, you know, one of the most powerful people in the world, is this vigilante, and you want to blackmail this person? Good, Good luck. luck. With that. Yeah, right. It's yeah. That's great. I love Lucius. I really Morgan Freeman is such a great actor, and this really is my favorite, one of my favorite characters from this movie or from the series. Um, I love the way that Lucius is smart. Yeah. But you're right, you know, and I do see him as a good guy, but at the same time, <laughs> yes, when Bruce presents him with this tool, which is really like the ultimate surveillance tool right. to invade everyone's privacy, and he says, this is terrible, this is a horrible thing, nobody should be able to wield this kind of power, and Bruce is like, well, I'm just giving it to you. He's just like, well, I guess I'll use it, but I can't work in any place that has this. And then he immediately does. So it's just like, okay, sure. And of course he shuts it down at the end and it's destroyed. But even the fact that it existed shows that, again, we have a person who's willing to bend their own moral code in certain situations. And well, I think that's the message is that everyone's morality can be flexible in the right set of circumstances. Well, there's also some wordplay at work here as well. Lucius is very close to Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Both mean light. Lucius means light and Lucifer means bringer of light. So there, there's a real similarity between Lucius and Lucifer. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's close. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's exact. I'm not saying that... No, but the, it's there. I mean, yeah. it's... I mean, again, because of this movie's focus on dark and light. Yes. And there's so much wordplay around that. I mm -hmm. mean, we also have the dark night, night with a K or night without a K. Yes. And this is like Gotham's dark night is Batman. And this is taking place during Gotham's Dark Night without the K. Right. You know, when there's so much crime and the crime is just running the city rampant. It's really smart that they have a character named Lucius because, you know, it just plays into that whole theme. 
the night is darkest before the dawn. Yeah, that's what uh, that's what Dent says in his speech before they, you know, reveal Batman when he actually says he is Batman. You know, and, and the funny thing is these people don't even trust each other with their plans, you no. know. They're, Dent and Wayne and Gordon are supposed to be on the same team. But even though they're working toward the same goal, they're constantly keeping each other in the dark, pun intended, <laughs> uh, about different parts of their plans. They all have trouble trusting anyone. And it just, you know, it's funny to me. You know, it's like these are the people that you've teamed up with, but you can't even tell them what game you're playing. I mean, it, it, no wonder the Joker is able to get the upper hand on them so many times. I mean, the other fact is they're all, like, not Gordon necessarily as much, but, like, Bruce Wayne and Harvey Dent are, like, extremely emotional. So it's quite easy to push them in different directions, especially if it has to do with Rachel. Oh, yes. I mean, that love triangle, you know, we, we definitely need to explore that. But one thing I do want to bring up to your point with them not trusting each other is the actual nickname that they had for Harvey Dent, right? Mm. And, you know, when Two-Face, because he is Two-Face at that point, when Harvey Dent Two-Face is in the hospital and half of his face has been burnt off, and he goes, what was that nickname you had for me? What was that nickname you had for me? Uh, uh, Harvey Two-Face, you know, Two-Face, whatever. Like, it, it's just like Gordon doesn't even want to say it. No, he has to, like, yell at him to make him say it. Dan has to yell at him. Yell at him in the same manner the Joker yelled at the imposter Batman on that torture video. Yeah. It's, it's, again, the Joker just makes more of himself. And it's, all of these people really are like children. These people have not advanced. They don't know how to play well with each other, literally. But then it's like, I, I just, the smoothness in contrast with the Joker's team, how they blindly follow him and they do anything yeah, well, it's because he has, I mean, most of the people who are on his team are not seemingly too bright, first of all, um, or, you know, I'm not saying about in the beginning, because the people who are in his heist group are actually brilliant, it seems. They all have their own specialties, but the people that he is enlisting later in the in the movie um, are, they mostly seem to be people from Arkham, so I don't know if there was an idea that Joker had been in Arkham before or that Joker was working with Scarecrow to recruit people from Arkham. Either way, it seems like he's working with a lot of people who aren't all there mentally and he's really easily able to tell those people what they want to hear. Like Phone Belly is told, oh yeah. you know, if you let me do what I need to do, I'll make the voices stop. Right. You know, but really he just has puts phone inside the guy and blows him up. But that does make the voices stop. Well, it does. <laughs> That's the Joker. Yeah, he wasn't lying. Exactly. Um, but yeah. you know, you don't necessarily. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny about that? When you bring that up, that he technically did say something that was true, is that later when we have that scene with Maroni and Two Face Harvey, is he does the same kind of thing. 
when he's, you know, holding a gun on Maroney. He's asking Maroney who the dirty cop is. And Maroney is like, you know, well, are you going to kill me? You know, if I tell you, will you not kill me? And he says, it can't hurt your chances, which technically is true. Maroney takes that answer as being, as him saying, yeah, you'll just tell me and I won't kill you. Mm -hmm. But really, it doesn't matter what Maroney does. There's still going to be a coin flip and that coin flip is still going to determine his outcome. So he's kind of doing this kind of end of Macbeth witches thing, just like Joker, and technically saying something that, you know, people are interpreting a certain way, but he's saying it very literally. It's it's genius, because the coin flip happens, you know, and it's fine for Maroney. He lives, so Maroney feels good. And then, you know... Harvey flips, well, he's Two-Face at this point. Two-Face flips the coin and says, oh, driver's not so lucky. Shoots the driver, you know, while they're just speeding in this limo, and the yeah. limo just flips. It's an amazing sequence. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great. I mean, having having this, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to put it. It is truth, but it's this really evil truth. You know, it, it's like... I don't know. It's like an evil leprechaun, you know, if you don't wish very specifically, right? Yeah. You know, so it, it, they do they do definitely have all those moments in this. And again, it, it's the, the Joker is able to pull it together somehow. I don't know. But what going back to our love triangle that, that we started on, yes, this love triangle is a dangerous love triangle because... Bruce Wayne is very powerful. Now, Harvey has no idea that he's Batman. He doesn't no. have a clue. But I do have a feeling, if Harvey lived, that eventually Rachel would have to tell Harvey that Bruce Wayne was okay. Because Harvey didn't trust Bruce Wayne at all. No. She actually says to Harvey at one point, Bruce Wayne's apartment is the safest place you can be in the city. And, and for like, her, that's true. Mm -hmm. Although it's not really true for Harvey that it's the safest place for her because she might be safe there, but she's also, you know, with Bruce and, you know, they kiss each other and, and it's not good for Harvey's relationship with her. You know, she eventually ends up picking Harvey just before she dies, we think. Um, you know, she says that. I think and she picked him. I think she, I think she does, too. Yeah. But I'm saying, like, you could still say you're not sure. Was it just something she said because she was about to die and she was talking to him? I mean, I think, you know, based on the letter that she gives to Bruce, that she's picked Harvey. But at the same time... That she gives to Alfred. Never makes it Sorry, to yes, yes. It's written to Bruce, but she gives it to Alfred. I think that that letter shows... That at that moment, she couldn't, you know, be, she felt that she couldn't be with Bruce at any point because he, his identity is too tied up with revenge and justice and being the Batman. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, the trajectory that Harvey was on, even before he became Two-Face, I wonder if that would have become a problem for her as well. Because... 
part of the thing, part of the reason I think she cared about Harvey is because she did feel like he was Gotham's white knight and he was working within the system and he was a good person and a good man. But she has a lot of issues with some of the ways that he's handling things. Like when he says he's a Batman and makes himself bait, you know, it's not enough for her to like break it off with him at that point or something. But I don't think she knew about his interrogation of Thomas Schiff. And I don't know what she would have thought about that. It's pretty rough. I mean, it actually brings me back to Star Wars. It makes me think about episode three, Revenge of the Sith, when Anakin goes and kills the younglings. I mean, this is pretty rough stuff. Yeah. But um, Padme, though, somehow was cool. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's a whole other story, really. But, I mean, it, it's, yeah, I think that that would really change everything for Rachel. And she, in my opinion, would, you know, if not completely break it off, would be like, you're on thin ice. Yeah, she you, you would know? really be questioning it because she has a lot of problems with Bruce because of his Batman persona. And I think that, you know, because it causes him to have to operate outside of the legality and the law is very important to her. Oh, yes. You know, I think that it's a difficult character because she is very back and forth with you know harvey and bruce and it makes her feel a little untrustworthy to me because she's kind of playing both sides with these guys you know she's allowing bruce to continue to believe that they're going to be together and at the same time you know in this relationship with harvey that she seems committed to as well and i think that that you know personally that bothers me a little bit because I don't like the idea of somebody, like, stringing two people along. Well, what I'd say is with Rachel, that would be the other side of Rachel. Because everyone has another side. I actually believe that Rachel is in love with both of them. And, I mean, you could even go a step further. Maybe. Maybe. I, I mean, I don't have anything to back it up at this point. But I know that she hates Batman, right? Mm-hmm. But Batman saves her life, jumps yeah. off a building for her. She knows that Batman would always be there. So it's just like she has she has that. She has this this love because these men are both very important to her. Yeah. I mean, it gets crazy when we have that dinner scene. Um, let's let's definitely talk about that. So the dinner scene where, you know, <laughs> Christian Bale is throwing major Patrick Bateman vibes. <laughs> Big time. It feels like, you know, Friday night at Dorcia. <laughs> definitely. They got the res at Dorcia. <laughs> um, yeah. So basically we go into the scene with Harvey and Rachel and Harvey saying, you know, it took him a long time to get this reservation. He's taking her out for a nice dinner. And then Bruce shows up with Natasha, who's like this prima ballerina. And uh, <laughs> he's like, oh, Rachel. And then he's like, oh, let's put a couple tables together. You know, and Harvey's like, oh, uh, they probably won't let us do that because he doesn't want to do that, obviously. And Bruce is like, oh, you know, I own the place. I think they'll do whatever I tell them to do. Um, <laughs> so then they get into this conversation 
where all the four of them are talking about Batman and, you know, Natasha is saying that this is a vigilante and he shouldn't be allowed to continue. And Harvey is actually arguing that it's a good thing that Batman is there and that Batman is only there because the public servants have failed the city and he needs to come in and clean up the place, you know, and he says that, you know, the Romans had this position and, of course, Rachel jumps in and reminds him that the last person to have this this position in Rome was Julius Caesar, who stole, you know, control of the city and became, like, a despot, uh, you know, the first in a long line of many, you know. And he's he kind of intimates that his belief is that, you know, the ends justify the means, which we do find out is kind of his philosophy in some cases. And if Batman is necessary because the government can't do what they need to do, you know, then vigilante justice is acceptable in that circumstance. And one actually gets the feeling that he likes vigilanteism. He supports it. Not just that he understands the argument for it, but that he actually likes it. And wishes to kind of be more like that. I think that what, you know, I get, I'm totally on board with you. What I get out of it is Harvey Dent really understands the confines of the system and working legally. And it's extremely difficult, you know, for him to do that. I mean, but as we mentioned, he already is working outside of the law, you know, because he is working with Batman, a vigilante. So it's just like Harvey is a person that just has an idealized vision of a vigilante, you know, and that's, that's where he's coming from with it. And what's so interesting in that scene is then we have Bruce Wayne come in and say that he thinks Batman, you know, basically is a felon, that he is not what this city needs. What they need is they need Harvey Dent. They need someone that can legally fix everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's just a wonderful flip, once again, in a movie with so many flips. I mean, because in this actual scene, I feel that Bruce Wayne in no way, shape, or form is acting like Batman. I feel no. like this could be an entirely other film. Yeah. And when we see, you know, them having this discussion... You know, it it impresses Bruce Wayne so much that he says, I'm going to throw you a party with my friends, you know, and he's like, oh, it's okay. He's like, you don't understand. One meeting with my friends, you're set for life. You know, he gets like juiced into the system. Yeah. Now, the other thing that is very funny about that scene is, you know, Harvey Dent brings up Julius Caesar. Now, the part of that story which is omitted is that Julius Caesar was killed. He was assassinated. Mm-hmm. You know, the senators got together and said, this guy's got to go. Well, I mean, and that's the whole thing here. Like, if you go outside the law, then that invites other people to go outside the law. So then when you become the law, you don't have, you know, you don't have a leg to stand on there. I mean, I think that this is a theme that reflects on real life. And it really opens up the door to ask the question about politicians. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for a politician not to be dirty? Because you have to do so many dirty things to gain the office and to keep the office and to keep your approval rating high. 
and you have to work with so many people who are dirty and your hands are going to get dirty and there's no way not to. So is it possible for a good person to be elected to an office and stay good? I don't know. Based on this, it really makes me question that. You know, I mean, I've questioned it in real life anyway, obviously. And I guess my general feeling is that most politicians are trash and that most people who want to be politicians are already garbage before they jump in the dumpster. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I don't know. This kind of reinforces my existing bias against politicians, but... I think it's really smartly done because you see a guy who we keep being told is a good guy mm -hmm. and we keep seeing him doing bad things or bending the rules or twisting the truth in order to get what is what he thinks is right, but it's still just because it's what he wants. You know, and there's so much gray area in this about right and wrong. You know, well, it is interesting that there is that gray area because everything is focused on light and dark. There are no shades of gray. You're either one or the other. And if Harvey Dent, you know, he does go to this party that Bruce Wayne throws for him and the Joker does break in. But let's say that that party was successful and everything went through. Harvey Dent would have enough people to fund him. But there's going to be strings attached. Obligations, yes. baby. Yeah, yeah, because there's so much money trading hands that you have to be like, hey, can you make sure I get a meatball sub every day <laughs> under my door, freshly baked, delivered from Palermo? You know, it's like you need to have the, the specificity of what you want and what you expect. And what you're getting right. out of that relationship. What are you paying for him to receive those donations, what is he giving away? It's a transactional relationship. And if you're just taking those donations without realizing that you're on the hook for something at that point, it's the same thing as those dirty cops. Those dirty cops are getting paid off by mobsters so that they can get what they want, which is, in the case of Ramirez, let's just take Ramirez. She's taking this money from the mob because she wants to be able to pay her mother's medical expenses. But what is she giving away for that? And when does it stop? Like, when is when has she paid it back in secrets or information? The fact is, never. Right. She's taken money. She's always on the hook with these people, and she can never stop. And she and Wirtz, the other cop, both say, like, they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what what they did was going to lead to Rachel dying. But what do they think was going to happen? Yeah, Harvey even says that question. Well, he's, again, Two-Face at that point. <laughs> it's hard. I never know whether to call him Harvey or Two-Face. Because I'm like, Harvey Two-Face? I'm like, well, that's what they called him when he was younger. <laughs> two I'm like, oh, Two-Face yeah. Harvey. Yeah, I mean, and he does. I mean, and that that is the question. Like, when you are lying down in bed with these bad people who say they're going to help you out, how much longer, you know, how, what are you going to have to do to, to pay that back? And there's not like a, a contract. It's not like you went to the bank 
you know, and made a signed agreement that says I'm going to borrow this much money and I'm going to pay it back with interest over this period of time. Right. It's like you're trading information and favors for cash and the favor may seem benign, you know, they're saying, oh, put Rachel at this location. Right. And all they do is drive her to the location. Well, they, what did you think she was going to do there? Play patty cake? Like, you know, I mean, you have to have some sense here and be logical. But these folks only have the idea of what they need in mind. And unfortunately, that's just going to lead to tragedy. What you have is you have people that are following orders. We've seen this many times in war crimes. Soldiers say, I was following orders. I just did this because I was told to. You know, and it's like you say that because someone else told you to, that takes any responsibility off of you. But, you know, there is morality. You are a human being. You know, if someone tells you to do something that is wrong, you know that it's wrong. One of the most interesting turns in this film to me is that Ramirez gets away. Because Harvey flips the coin, and it's that she lives. And she seems to be the person in this film that has given away the most information and caused the most damage to everyone in the film. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she's the closest to Gordon, it seems. Mm -hmm. And yet, she's the one who has to call and tell his family, you know, to meet at, at this location, which is where Rachel died. Because Harvey is holding a gun on her and asking her to do it. And, you know, Gordon's family trusts her. Yeah. They trust her probably more than they trust him. He pretended to be dead and didn't tell them. Right. You know, she also thought he was dead and went and did the notification, you know. So with Stevens, you know, I, I think that her character is like the dirtiest dirty cop and even though she clearly had a reason for doing what she did she's culpable and her attempts to kind of wiggle out of that or make excuses or justify it don't really change the fact that she's been the instrument of a whole lot of suffering yeah it's very disturbing Again, it's just this person that's caused so much damage is able to walk free. That mm -hmm. there is nothing that happens to this person. Well, I thought it was really interesting that the Joker's story is kind of unresolved. I mean, I don't know if it's because they planned to do more with him in the next movie originally and then they had to change their plans because of Heath Ledger or what. I think I've heard that, but I, I haven't got uh, supporting data to, to confirm but the fact is like Batman just kind of literally leaves him hanging <laughs> and runs yeah. off to deal with Dent because Dent has become the bigger problem um, because if people find out that he's gone rogue then all the work that he's done is going to be reversed and that's the concern that they actually have the whole time is that Harvey keeps doing things that aren't in line with this white knight image and they're afraid that it's going to cause a problem from this is back to you know when he's interrogating Schiff but then especially when he becomes two-faced and now he's you know killed multiple people including cops dirty or not 
and he's kidnapped Gordon's family and is wanting to kill Gordon's child, you know. Wow. I mean, that scene, I mean, he just goes so far. He goes so far, and you can't believe that this person was ever on the right side of the law or ever had the right intentions. Honestly, when we get to the end of the film and he's threatening Gordon's family and he's threatening his son, I really start to wonder about Harvey Dent from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that Harvey Dent really strikes me as the type of person where if he didn't think anyone was around and no one would find out, he would act a lot differently. Oh, yeah. Like Harvey Dent. He's a politician. he's, He's terrifying. He is not who you think he is. I mean, he has, you know, this very, you know, chiseled Americana face with like the cleft chin and the blonde hair. And of course you trust him and I'm sure he played football and he I was believe the greatest. in Harvey Dent. Right? That is <laughs> that slogan is so good. That's and the right. fact that the Joker dressed as a nurse has, I believe in Harvey Dent, has that sticker. <laughs> yeah. On his chest is just perfect. Here's another example of the, you know, the, the two sides. The Joker is in a hospital. A hospital is where people are supposed to get well, okay? In this case, the hospital is going to explode, okay? And he is dressed up as a nurse. A nurse helps people. Caregiver. Correct, yeah. right? What happens? A police officer comes in, tells them to evacuate shoots them yeah you know so it's like the person that's actually supposed to help you kills you and he is posing as somebody who's trying to help harvey he you know even after he reveals himself to be the joker yeah he's still positioning himself with harvey as someone who's trying to help he's like look i'm just here to help you i'm just here to explain to you that you, you know, have been lying to yourself this whole time and that the only morality here is chance and chaos. And, you know, that's just a fact that you need to learn because otherwise, you know, you're going to go through life continuing to lie to yourself. And, yeah, he's presenting himself as trying to do a guy a favor, you know? And, and I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think we've talked a ton about the characters here and the story and the themes, which is great. And that's what I really love digging into about this movie. But let's like take a minute to shout out some of the actors who actually played these roles and brought them to life. Because I just can't see anybody but Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent. I think Eckhart is amazing in this. He does have the right look. You know, he has, just like you said, the all-American kind of a look. Um, He almost looks like cartoonish, you know. We have Maggie Gyllenhaal playing Rachel here. Katie Holmes played Rachel in the uh, Batman Begins movie, which is the first of this trilogy. Yeah. And now Maggie Gyllenhaal steps into the role because Katie Holmes um, apparently didn't have time. She was booked with other movies at the time. And I think Maggie Gyllenhaal brings a different kind of sensibility to the character. She seems very intelligent. And I really buy her as like a lawyer. Yes. You know, and also as somebody who's really trying to fight the good fight. I think in spite of her 
failings in her personal relationships. If we look at her professionally here, she is the closest one um, to actually doing real good, you know, and not wanting to go outside the lines to achieve that. I could certainly see that. I mean, the scene where she's working with Lau and trying to make a deal so they can actually put together a RICO case against the mobsters is excellent. Mm -hmm. She really has a great power within her. She has this great presence that you want to follow. And you actually think to yourself, had she lived, she very well might have had a career in politics herself. Yeah, and hopefully could have stayed clean in it somehow. Right. I mean, I want to point out the scene, you know, at the party when Batman or when Bruce Wayne finds out that Harvey's being targeted, he kind of goes in and, and like knocks Harvey out and hides him in a closet. And he tells Rachel, stay hidden because he's like, I'm going to, you know, he's going to take care of this situation. Rachel doesn't stay hidden. The next scene is her coming into the party where the Joker is kind of terrorizing everyone there and just saying, you know what? Stop. Don't do this. Yes. And that makes her the target. But how freaking gutsy is she to come out there, you know, in the first place when she could have just hidden and stayed in the back while Bruce Wayne changes into Batman and takes care of business. But she felt the need to come out and, and you know, be a part of that. And it took a lot of guts. That's I really like that about Rachel is that she is not afraid to stand up for what's right. And I think that's important here because we see a lot of other people who say that and maybe don't always, you know, behave and practice what they preach. Sure. I mean, I also think it's very funny that at the point that Bruce Wayne subdues Harvey Dent, it's when he's making a marriage proposal to Rachel <laughs> and Rachel does not commit. She will not commit to an answer. And I also like that as well, because this is a person that makes thoughtful decisions. She wants to do the right thing. She does not want to lead someone along. You know, again, when you break up with people, that can break someone's heart. But agreeing to a marriage proposal and then changing your mind. Also problem. Terrible. I mean, again, it brings us back to this, this love triangle again. And that Bruce Wayne is trying to retire as Batman because he says that he wants Harvey Dent to handle it through legal means. But at the same time, he has a deal with Rachel that if he was able to not be Batman anymore, that they could be together. Yeah. So he's got that, you know, in the back of his mind as well. So it's like not only will he not have to take care of the city 24-7, I mean, his body is bruised and battered. This is, you know a real commitment. Mm -hmm. He would have someone legally taking care of it. He would get to be with the woman he loves and go off into the sunset. For him, it's like a win-win-win yes. scenario, and his motivations include all of those things. It's not just one of them. No. And Christian Bale plays those different options really well. I yes. mean, we see him, you know, sewing himself up, at the beginning, after he's been attacked by a dog, you know, he he has to he has to do a lot of different things in this particular movie in the series that he didn't have to do. You know, in the first movie, we see him kind of going through all these psychological changes, you know, from 
you know, being this guy who couldn't take revenge on the person who killed his parents to going, you know, to study, you know, martial arts and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, then coming home and, and in this he has, you know, he's still playing the dumb bimbo billionaire guy in public. At the same time, he's trying to, you know, be Batman He has a lot of scenes in costume as Batman where he's playing another kind of role. And it's a lot to, I think, juggle for Christian Bale, but he handles it really well. And he's, you know, he's just a really great Batman and he really puts his own stamp on it. We've already said Heath Ledger is amazing in this. Like all the different things that he kind of pulls into his performance are so important you know, he was influenced by, like, different punk musicians who were kind of anarchists. Um, he, I think, took some inspiration I read from the character of Alex from Clockwork Orange, you know, who is a chaotic kind of guy um, who just kind of wants to watch the world burn. Right. Um, as Alfred says. And, you know, I think that a lot of people didn't believe in Heath Ledger in this role before they saw what he was doing and he really made a believer out of everyone yeah michael kane said he was terrified when he first saw him in makeup and he does have a terrifying presence i mean to go back to this fundraiser party that goes wrong because the joker comes in when rachel speaks up and gets the joker to stop terrorizing this older man you know where he's saying you know you remind me of my father and Mm -hmm. i hate my father Um, You know, he then comes over to her and it's just like this complete change again. That that's the thing with our Joker character. And again, it it feels like some kind of training. He is in complete control of how he comes across in in a very mocking way. He starts fixing his hair like he's (laughs) you know, it's his high school crush. And then he comes over and he tells the story about how he got his scars and he is holding her face it's terrifying and he's got that blade so close to her it is a terrifying intimate scene that is played beautifully it makes me sick literally every time i I see it because it's so good and it's also i mean just to jump out of of the dark knight for a moment it's pretty wild because the reason that christopher nolan wanted heath ledger is because of brokeback mountain where you know he was with Jake Gyllenhaal, Maggie Gyllenhaal's brother. So it's interesting, you know, how it loops around. But it's like we have this incredible moment again of fear, intimidation, and it, it's it's visceral. It's very strong. And, and then, you know, what happens? He ends up, you know, he grabs her and, you know, he shoots out the window in this penthouse, this high rise, you know, and... Batman is there, and he's like, let Rachel go. And, you know, he's like, oh, okay. And then he just... <laughs> A bad know. choice of words. Yeah, right? I Again, the literal Joker stuff, is, it comes back again. It's so, it's so smooth. It's just a great dry delivery, which makes you laugh, but it, 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 it's so horrifying. Heath Ledger really cuts a lot deeper. Um, I'd say. So, yeah, so Rachel, you know, goes out the window, slides off, falls down, Batman jumps off. Which is what 
that that's what Joker's referring back to later when he says that he at first maybe thought Harvey Dent was Batman because the way he, you know, went after Rachel there. Mm. Um, I think that every moment that Heath Ledger is on screen is effing brilliant. For sure. I mean, every scene that he's in, he's great. He's great non-verbally. He's great when he has a long speech. He's great when he's just interacting with people one-on-one. He's great when he, he's in that scene with all the mobsters, you know? <laughs> and that. he's kind of, like, manipulating all of them at once. You know, he has these great lines throughout. I just think he's one of the great villains. It, this performance in particular. I mean, the Joker already, we think, is one of the great villains of literature. And by literature, I mean all kinds, you know, whether it be comic book book film whatever but i think heath ledger's joker in particular is a very special greatest villain of all time because of the way that that ledger imbues the performance with like this blankness um i think it's just so well done it's really well directed but it's so well acted I just think it's fantastic. So the thing that I want to mention is in that gangster scene, you know, we're in that back room, which is so wonderful, is when he puts the pencil on the table. Oh, yeah. He's like, I'm going to make this pencil disappear, you know? And, like, some henchman, some thug comes over to him, and the Joker grabs the guy by the head and slams him down on the pencil, instantly kills him. And then we go over to that Chechen gangster. Love this guy. Right? He's, you know, we see him from the beginning. Best reaction ever. It's like... He's like, oh, that is pretty good. <laughs> good trick. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's what his face is saying. But it's great. I mean, it's, again, it's just this delivery. And I mean, you know, and again, when the Joker leaves, he goes, you know, if you guys change your mind, you want to talk to me, here's my card. And he leaves, like, you know, the Joker card. <laughs> From the deck, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I just wanted to bring that up because it's just everything with the Joker is mocking. And it, it's mocking everything because how many businessmen have a business card, particularly the further we go back in time? Yeah, I mean, the, why so serious? That's his whole deal, right? Right. Like, everything about him is like, why so serious? He doesn't, he doesn't really believe in anything. He doesn't think anything should be serious because he thinks everything is bullshit. Yeah, he doesn't think that anything is real because the world has completely let him down and he feels like he's seen through everything. So this resistance is futile, if you will. And anyone that wants to tell him different, he wants to drive them into the ground. He wants them to either come over to his side or die in a horrible way when he stands over them laughing. This yeah. is an extremely dangerous, dangerous character that hides in plain sight, just like, you know, the CIA, you know, has been, you know, said to do. It's just like, you know who he is. And again, it's like we see that throughout the film. Because when he is with the police and he doesn't have the makeup on, we don't realize it's him. Because this is a person that we see 95% of the time in makeup. Yeah. You know, th this character never breaks. And with Batman, you know, we do have Bruce Wayne and we have Batman. And with the Joker, it's just Joker. We don't know anyone else. No, we don't. And that's uh, another part of it is that 
his appearance is kind of that of a crazy person. Right. You know, he looks, he's dressed like well in the fact that he's wearing a suit, but it's a crazy color, you know, and he always looks horrendously disheveled at right. all times. So because of that appearance, people are going to tend to underestimate him, think that he's crazy, you know, all these types of things like help him to get into places and to not be perceived as the threat that he is. It's like high anxiety, right? The Mel Brooks film. How do you get through security? You make a big scene so people don't want to deal with you. Yeah. They don't question it. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? So this is a long time ago. Uh, George and I went to see a movie at the Egyptian Theater, and we were walking back to our car very late at night. And we were walking by this tent. And as we were walking by this tent in the middle of the night, a person came out of the tent dressed in full Joker makeup, like the Heath Ledger Joker. And my heart stopped, <laughs> as did George's. We were yeah, terrified. It was scary. And the, the guy was like, oh, no, no, it's okay. I'm, it's okay, you know? I think he was just like, hey, guys, how you doing? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, he immediately wanted to try to defuse the fact that yeah. he knew we were going to be shitting ourselves, yeah. which we were. Um, because, yeah, it was, it was like three o'clock in the morning or something. I don't know. And why the fuck would you sleep with that makeup on? Like, know. that is some scary, scary well, shit. Well, he probably was out on Hollywood Boulevard, you know, doing pictures and stuff very late. And, you know, if he lives in a tent, I don't know what access he has to, like, clean himself up or any of this kind of stuff. It might be that he has to wait until the gym opens in the morning to be able to go take a shower. I don't know. I guess that makes sense. And also, if somebody tried to fuck with you in the middle of the night and you came out looking like that, people would leave. <laughs> that would help. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would help big time. So, uh, one actor and performance and character that we haven't mentioned, which seems pretty ridiculous because I kind of consider him the heart of the trilogy is Alfred. Yes. The amazing Michael Caine as Alfred. I mean, Alfred is so many things in this movie. You know, he is Bruce's, you know, substitute father. You know, he has all these experiences that we don't... I mean, he refers back to when he worked, you know, in Burma. Right. And we don't know in what capacity. I'm assuming he was military or governmental in some way. But, you know, he, he tells the story about, you know, them searching for this criminal guy there. So Alfred has a rich history that's as yet untapped, you know. And I just think Michael Caine is so great here because he's taking care of Bruce. He supports Bruce. But he also, you know, is kind of the voice of reason with other characters as well. Like when he's talking to Rachel. You know, he's trying to explain to her why Bruce does what he does mm -hmm. in a way that Bruce could never explain. And I, I love Michael Caine in this role. I think we loved Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman as well. But I think that they allow Alfred to have so much more to him in this series. And I really love that about it. Well, also in the Matt Reeves, the Batman I mean, that takes this narrative of him being a soldier or, I don't know, mercenary, whatever he was, 
the next level because Andy Serkis's physique. I mean, he's a very strong guy. Yeah. He's formidable. With Michael Caine, you get the idea that he was formidable back in the day, and he still does have some tricks. But at this point, everything that he would use is he would use his mind, you know, to take down an enemy. And it does leave it hanging because it's like, okay, you know, if you just watch this movie, you're like, he was in Burma. Okay, so was he in Burma, you know, as as a soldier, as an agent? Or, yeah, was he just a gun for hire? You don't know. We and have it, no idea. And it's left... It's left, you know, kind of hanging. What makes me think about the gun for hire scenario is he's talking about, you know, the people in Burma saying they're having a problem with this bandit. And, you know, the people say, can you take care of this bandit? Now, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you were an army, you know, soldier, I don't necessarily know that you would be taking requests from, <laughs> you know, people you know, on the ground in the country to take care of something. Now, you could elect to do it, you know, but it, it did leave the door open for me that, again, there is possibly another side to Alfred mm -hmm. because every single character, again, there's light and there's dark. That is the biggest thing. We saw that. We saw that in Empire Strikes Back, and then we see that in this. Duality is the biggest thing. We see everything in twos. I'll even take it a step further for you. Towards the end of the film, we actually see this building that's under construction, and it says Davis twice. We also see, you know, earlier in the film, it's like we see this no trespassing sign, and underneath it, there's another sign that says no trespassing. Now, these are kind of small, trivial things, but it really shows that everything, you know what I mean, is double mm. if you look at it. So I really think that there is even more to this film than we're able to, to fully comprehend because I do feel like, again, it, like you brilliantly pointed out, dark night, dark night. You know what I mean? It's like we have all of these things mixed up. And also, we're fooling around with the colors. So Batman, right, is our hero. He wears all black. The Joker in the scene in the hospital, right, where he blows it up, he's wearing all white. You see, it's like you have all of those things right there. And even to take it a step further, the Joker, when he's dressed as the nurse and blows up the hospital, he has the I Believe in Harvey Dent sticker on him. So he has red, white, and blue on. <laughs> yeah. You see? So it's like he has he has th this whole thing happening. And again, it's like I do feel that there is a real disdain for establishment and government because of the police you know, situation where he's dressed up as a police officer, right? Mm -hmm. And oh, it, yeah. it, so it's like he wants to be, he wants to destroy everything. So it, it's going back to what I said, but it, it's just like, I, I want to say so much about this film, but it's so hard because I feel that Christopher Nolan is such an impressive director and this script is expertly written mm -hmm. well he's a very intricate storyteller yes and you know he does so much in every phase of like this filmmaking you know he is involved in the writing he's involved in obviously the filming but even like the development of the the different vehicles and all these types of things like they're working on this from the beginning 
And so his stamp is kind of on, on every bit of this. And I feel like his mind is very complex. Like the way that he looks at things um, is, is not simple. Like he really thinks about uh, the puzzles that you can kind of put together out of everything. And it comes across really well in this film because this is a complicated movie. This isn't your simple good guy, bad guy, superhero movie. You know, there is dark and light in every character and it's explored in depth, really, in every character. So this is kind of a major spoiler for, you know, pretty much all of Christopher Nolan's films, but I do want to bring it up. He deals with doubles all of the time, right? We can take a look at the prestige, literally. We have a double. We take a look at Memento. We see someone that we think is a good person trying to find the person that raped and killed their wife. We find out they're actually the criminal, right? We look at the film Insomnia, Al Pacino, this police officer. He's trying to solve this crime. But guess what? We find out that he also killed his partner. And, you know, you're like, wait, did he kill his partner because he was going to turn him in to IA? You see, it, it in all of his films, Christopher Nolan always brings in this other element. There's always something else. Maybe in Interstellar, I don't see it. Bad guy, Matt Damon. Oh, yes. Interstellar, right? So I think that could play into your point. Inception, right? Oh, God. With Inception, you don't know whether to shit or go blind. <laughs> that should be the tagline. Inception, you don't know whether to shit or go blind. Yeah, I think that'd be I good. I think that would be smart. They, <laughs> like a new new poster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it is something that he keeps going back and exploring. And I think it's because there's no answer to this question. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's about psychological complexity in humans and... There's no answer to that. And I think that understanding that there's no answer is the answer, probably. Well, and they're also, it's like everything is trying to operate under a series of rules. But when we look at a film like Inception, for instance, it's like there are rules to planting a seed and what you can do in the dreams. And then things get blurred. You know, it's never, it never is a black and white situation the very end of inception is not black they don't even resolve it no it's it's like you make your own decision i mean again that's kind of how it is with this joker character because they don't offer you any explanation for his origin it's up to you to kind of fill in those blanks and that's really funny in a batman story because i feel like every batman movie or comic book from at least my experience is always very concerned with explaining to you how people got to be the way they are. Right. You know, and with Batman in particular, we, you know, exhaustively to the point where it's kind of a joke now, know about his parents getting killed. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and that's <laughs> always like how we know, you know, why Bruce Wayne does what he does is because of that incident. And usually, you know, with the Joker, we understand that the Joker became that way because of something that happened to him. We have a whole thing about that in the 89 Batman. Mm-hmm. But in this, it's like, hmm, you don't need to know. You figure it out. 
and it lends itself to a lot of really fun and interesting speculation for sure about who this person is how he got that way why he's doing what he's doing and you know i love that i think that it's i i can't say that i always like it when people when movie makers use ambiguity um sometimes i get pissed because i'm like you should have just made a decision but in this case, I think ambiguity works, and it works well, and I'm happy for the ambiguity because it does leave it open for us to interpret it. The ending of the film, though, is not ambiguous. I mean, with no. the Joker, yes. But at the end of the film, we're left with Harvey Dent dead, being praised as a hero because it's the best thing for the city. So we all tell a lie. Again, what we said we don't want to do, really. You know, we said we want justice. So does justice mean lying? You know, I, I you know what I mean? That's yeah, the they're question. lying to everyone. You know, the only people who know the truth are Batman, Gordon, and Gordon's family who yeah. were there. And they have to keep the secret, you know, because they've decided again that they know what's best for everyone. And it's like, I think that that is a patronizing thing to do. To say, we know what's best for everybody, so we're going to keep the truth from them. You know, I mean, that's that's like saying, I know better than you. And I, I, I know what kind of misbehavior that you would engage in if I gave you the opportunity. So I'm not going to give you the opportunity. And I don't know if that's a good thing or not, you know. And I don't think the movie does answer that question, though. So there is ambiguity there. Well, and you also know that Batman decides to take the heat for all of this so they can preserve Harvey Dent's image. And so Batman will be pursued, will be prosecuted. Everyone will be after him. And this act of sacrifice that he takes on, you see, this is a new question I've got. Is it selfless? Is it because he wanted to disappear? Is it because Batman is done now? Is that where we're at? Now he has a reason to say Batman is retired. You see, it, it's, I mean, there's just, there are so many ways that you can go through this film. I mean, you know, Gordon has this great speech where he talks about the nobility of Batman for doing what he's doing. And the very title again, you know, like in the medieval sense, Dark Knight comes into play. Yeah. And it's because that's what they need. And we see Gordon actually destroying the bat signal, which again, tying into our theme, is a black bat outline with white light around it. So it's both. Yeah, it's both. And, and he know. destroys it. He destroys it. That, that It's present in, in every shot. The bat signal is a light. It's a light with a silhouette in it. So it's like, wow. You know, I've, I've never seen, well, no, I shouldn't say never, but I've rarely seen a film that is this uh, complex. You know, and, and, and it starts from the very beginning. This opening scene starts with that huge sweeping, like, IMAX camera shot mm-hmm. that feels like... You know, we used to go to IMAX movies at, like, science museums and things like that before IMAX kind of became more of a straightforward format that people use for regular movies. And we would watch, you know, The Grand Canyon or 
Ocean Oasis or all these types of movies that use IMAX. And they have like these big sweeping kind of vistas. And we have that in this movie. You have like this IMAX kind of helicopter shot that opens the movie. And it kind of just tells you like, this is going to be a big movie. This movie's on a big format. It's going to look amazing. And we're just going to do everything bigger than you've ever seen. And that's what they do pretty much beginning to end in this movie is they have huge action, huge stunts, huge effects. Like everything in this movie matches like the majesty of the format that they chose to tell it in. Well, and it was not an easy feat because these IMAX cameras, there were only four in the world at the time that they shot this. And it was very difficult to hold the focus. And also the cameras themselves were very unwieldy. And heavy. Yes. They had to figure out how to make that work. And it was on such a grand scale that they did this because you have all these action scenes. There's so much camera movement. And I remember someone saying on the special features, you know, this is something where you would just have the camera still and you would shoot two penguins. Yeah. yeah. And now it's like they have you know, the sweeping action scenes. What's really interesting is before shooting, Christopher Nolan actually screened some films for the crew, and one of those films was Heat. Yeah, well, I mean, couldn't have picked a more representative (laughs) kind of movie to help them, you know, understand the heist scene anyway. No, no, no way. And also it is a callback to Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, because we actually have a clown mask that we see in the killing that's used in the robbery of this racetrack. It's different, of course, in The Dark Knight because there are many clown masks Mm -hmm. and they're robbing this bank. Um, But it does call back. It's definitely an homage intentionally, I'm sure. Yeah, well, and also the way, you know, the the, the guys are talking. It kind of reminds me of the type of dialogue that we hear, the way it's spoken in The Killing. Interesting. Yeah, it makes me also think of Point Break, and one of the other things about Point Break that came up was uh, there's one point where Heath Ledger as a Joker is driving that truck that Mm. flips over, where he sounds like Nixon for a minute. You said that, (laughs) and I I laughed because it made me think of, you know, made me tie all these things back together. When you've seen this many movies like we have, they all just start running together, but in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so I think we should probably at least, even though we're running super long here, I think we should at least hit on some of the awesome technical accomplishments of this movie. Absolutely. I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, I can't get an exact number, but somewhere between like 25 and 40 minutes of this movie were shot on IMAX and they used all those crazy cameras that we discussed. Um, and also had to come up with new ways to use them. I mean, they did steady camera eggs. They did like the swing arm kind of thing, which ended up destroying one of the four cameras in existence. So then there were only three. Um, that's that's harsh. That, that's did, like a sad moment. It is. They were very upset. And I would have like, had a service for the camera. Yeah, you know? I, they should have. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they also had all these crazy stunt sequences like, Nolan came to his people, you know, saying, hey, I want to just make this bigger and better and crazier than ever because he really wanted to give the audience a sense that anything could happen and you're never safe. 
you know, and I think that that was expertly done by so many people, like, from the composers. Yeah, James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer were the composers on the film, and Hans Zimmer, of course, we remember from Dune. Which was another great score. Yes. Um, And and we saw a little behind the scenes of Hans Zimmer working on this and, and trying to think of new sounds and new ways that he could make music that would go with this Joker. Um, you know, he did a lot of experimentation with using metal on strings to kind of make eerie sounds. And it was a really funny thing that um, I don't know exactly how much uh, sound recording it was, but Christopher Nolan said that on one flight from like Hong Kong um, back to England or wherever, that he was listening to the stuff that Hans Zimmer sent him, and it was, like, disturbing. Because, <laughs> you know, he's just listening to it. It's not exactly a pleasant sound to listen to, because it's kind of trying to, to bring you into, like, the Joker's madness, in a way. What's really interesting is, yes, they were trying to get the sound of metal on strings, and so they actually used razor blades on piano strings at one point. And that actually Hans Zimmer, they showed you when he was with one of the musicians, how they really dug down on a cello on this specific note. It was just so grinding, and it just, it it raises an intensity. And they wanted something that was unpleasant. They didn't want to have, like, a theme that you could hum for Batman because they didn't want to have that kind of feeling. They wanted this really just horrible, horrible tension. And and that's what they brought in. It's just like these these screeching, clawing sounds, almost like nails on a chalkboard. It's awful. And they played the sounds of the guitars that were trying to make this sound as well. Yeah, it it takes a real genius to be able to, to dig this deep. And the cello player just, like, couldn't even... You know, they said that the cello player could hardly even stand it. And we actually saw this behind the scenes of this cello player playing with Hans Zimmer at his studio. Man, incredible. Yeah, they did kind of a similar thing with some of the sound effects, too. Like the bat pod, they wanted it to sound like it doesn't change gears. So it just kept being like this ratcheting intensity of the sound of this motor. And it's kind of disturbing because... You know, when you drive a car or drive, you know, anything, I guess, you're expecting it to rev and then slow back down because of the RPMs going down when it downshifts or upshifts. And that didn't happen here. It just keeps going like, like up and up and up and up and up. And it's, it's kind of like disturbing. I don't know. It just disturbs me on a weird level. But I think that the sound in this movie is great, and it was difficult to do um, because the IMAX cameras made so much noise that for those scenes, they had to do everything through Foley and ADR because they couldn't use any live sound. Um, You know, if you get a chance to watch this movie again and uh, look at some of the special features or do, what was it called, the focus points version? Yes, yes that was on uh, the Blu-ray, it's really worth it. It's a lot of extra footage. <laughs> like, it's a, it adds kind of an hour to your watching of the film. An hour and 21 minutes, I think. Yeah, and it does, inter- and it does. I have to warn you, it does interrupt 
some of the most exciting sequences of the film, <laughs> but it gives you so much extra info about the challenges they had on this and just the crazy stuff that they were doing, like effects that they were trying to achieve. I mean, this, <laughs> this one person, Chris Corbold, who was the special effects supervisor on the film, uh, keeps coming up <laughs> as having to like manage all of these wild ideas that uh, Nolan had and you can just hear this is like the most stressed man in America I think <laughs> I mean well or England or wherever on the planet he happens to be uh, he is being stressed out by somebody asking him to do something completely insane which he then figures out how to do and do brilliantly I mean you know every crash every you know wild kind of stunt sequence and stitching together like you know, practical stuff and CGI and all this kind of different stuff. It, it's really unbelievable what they were able to do. I think my personal favorite, like, effect is when they flip the 18-wheeler. The oh, yeah. I mean, that's totally shocking. I remember seeing it in the theater. I never thought I would see an 18-wheeler just like flip over. I mean, yeah. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And the way they manage it was simply by the use of a gigantic piston underneath the trailer, which shot it up in the air and flipped it forward. Um, but it worked out really well and they didn't think it was going to. <laughs> um, and, and it was just a lot of work, you know, to practice it. And there's a guy driving that, by the way. So there's a guy in the cab. They reinforced it a ton with steel and they were able to do that. And of course, that, that truck has slaughter as the best medicine printed <laughs> on the side, which I enjoy. Well, and it also has like a, a big top, like it's some kind of traveling circus, yeah. which is incredible. And also in like Terminator 2, you know, we had Chuck Tamburo, who was in a helicopter and the T-1000 throws him out, right? Yeah. So then the T-1000 is shown as doing that crazy stunt by flying under the bridge and it's a similar situation here because the joker actually goes and he throws out the truck driver who's actually the stunt driver you know it's this older gentleman who is driving this truck and it's like oh my god when you see him you know get out you're just like this could be your grandfather <laughs> and he kicks so much ass like i wouldn't have the satchel to be in that truck that flips no. i mean it, they said the only thing that was cgi about it is they had to take out you know the lift the piston that flipped the truck the entire prison transfer scene when harvey dent is being transferred and then the joker and his goons are in pursuit is just a marvel top to bottom mm -hmm. i mean we talked about this 18 wheeler stunt which is incredible but really that's only the tip of the iceberg so they were shooting in chicago on lower wacker drive and so it's just like this subterranean passage and they actually had a ramp on the vehicle that the uh the tumbler you know batman's vehicle jumps over there's a ramp behind the vehicle and in this small confined area the tumbler went up this ramp over this moving car and jumped it with such low clearance it's completely incredible that they were able to do that now they weren't able to do that with everything and this is when 
our minds were completely blown. Totally. Yeah. So the scene <laughs> where Batman's tumbler actually goes underneath the garbage truck, they weren't able to do that. They checked it out and they said, no, we can't do it. So what they did is they actually had miniatures designed. They had 140 feet, I believe, of lower Wacker Drive built. I believe it was in England. And they had it set up, and they had like these, I think maybe one-third models yeah. of, of the garbage truck and the tumbler. And that's how they did the sequence. They had the same settings for their light. So it was like they did it slightly underexposed when they did it on Lower Wacker Drive because they were actually forced to use just the practical lights in the tunnel. There wasn't any room for anything else. So they had the same light conditions in their model with these exact replicas yeah. of the, you know, the bamboo peel and this garbage truck. And they cut together seamlessly. Absolutely. I, I never knew that was models. No. It did not even cross my mind no. that it was model. I mean, and then when I saw it, knowing it was a model, I still had a hard time, like, believing it. I mean, I can kind of tell now because I'm really thinking about it hard. But that scene is just so exciting. Sure. That you're really wrapped up in what's going on. And I just don't think you're thinking about, you know, how did they do this? I mean, the bat pod popping out of the destroyed bat mobile tumbler deal. Wow. That was crazy. Right? That was an entire process where they actually really went and they thought out practically how could this work and you know so the bat pod is actually the front two wheels of the batmobile and they come out and they form this this motorcycle like you've never seen and so it, it's just incredible to see it and they tried to do it practically where the bat pod could come out of the batmobile but it was just too difficult because of the design that they had in mind but they did create an actual functioning bat pod. This was, you know, this type of motorcycle that a stunt driver, you know, practiced on, trained on, so that he could go and do all of these stunts. Christian Bale was not even able to sit on a bat <laughs> pod. You know, it was like, you know, its own thing. Yeah. You know, and when they actually shot these sequences, again, mind blown, you actually have a person on another motorcycle with an IMAX camera mounted on the front that is driving and following the action. I mean, this is the type of stuff you just can't even believe. Now, I'm going to backpedal for a second because I talked about the Batmobile jumping over a vehicle. So the reason that that happens is because the Joker and his slaughter truck actually has a rocket launcher that he has aimed at the van that has Harvey Dent in it. And Batman needs to save them. So what he does is he gasses up and jumps over this vehicle in front of him. And as he jumps over the vehicle in front of them, which actually happens, they were going 30 miles an hour, I believe, okay? An explosive, an actual practical explosive goes off in the back of the Batmobile to mimic the rocket actually hitting it. Yeah. And that's that's how we segue into this incredible bat pod sequence. I mean, I I love car chases. I love these type of things. Like bullet, that's my thing. Like if you tell me there's a good car chase, I'm in. Oh and, yeah. You know, and the commitment to to practical effects whenever possible. When the helicopter actually goes down, 
They actually had like the body of a helicopter that they just kind of rolled down the street, right? And like, they kind of blew it up. I mean, hell, they blew everything else up. I know, that's the funny thing is they blew up so much. Yeah. And they, I mean, they blew up that hospital for real. Yes. Yeah, they, I mean, and that was a whole amazing thing. Like, literally Heath Ledger walked out of the building and then they exploded it. Yeah, I mean, they had actually worked on that. They had worked with people to find out how they could actually make the hospital collapse in sections. So they went in and they installed all these explosives strategically, and they actually cut the building in sections so they could drop in sections. And it's almost like a wave, the way that it goes down. Yeah. And they practiced this sequence, you know, so many times before they shot it live because it's a one-take situation. You know, you can't put the hospital back. Yeah, exactly. And Heath Ledger had to time everything out. Wow. And, you know, he's acting, too, while he's walking out of this building. And at the same time, he's, like, counting, I guess, how far he needs to be at what time. And and he doesn't look back, like, at no. all. I mean, that's that's impressive. Because I mean, cool guys don't look at explosions. <laughs> He's much cooler than me because I would have looked. I would have, you know, I would have had, like, some reaction. I would have jumped. I mean, they actually said that in his hair there was, like, some kind of cork in some of the, the building materials. And, and it was, like, stuck in his hair, you yeah. know, afterwards. But he is so in character that, yeah, he, he is fully focused on moving ahead. And it just... It just burns. It just blows up. Yeah. I mean, his commitment to the character in this is something that you just can't help but take your hat off to. I mean, rarely, you know, can I ever imagine being in a situation where I could be so focused that I would not acknowledge an entire building exploding next to me. You know, I mean... Heath Ledger, of course, you know, did posthumously win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his work. Uh, you know, well-deserved. I mean, honestly, it would have been much better if the award didn't happen and Heath Ledger was still alive because he was such a brilliant actor and so yeah. young. Oh, so much to him. give. He was great. I mean, Brokeback Mountain, what a knockout performance. And that, that Brokeback Mountain performance is what made Christopher Nolan take notice and say, I want this guy. Yeah, because he said, like, there was just no vanity in what he was doing. It's amazing. He was completely without ego and, and fearless, you know. And I just, I think that, you know, you just couldn't have had a better person for this. But, yeah. and I think that that's probably the case in every kind of role in this movie whether it's behind the camera or in front of the camera there are a lot of really gifted people on nolan's team who were doing amazing things and you know all the actors too i mean one of the things that kind of blew my mind absolutely up is that when you go into that hong kong scene where you know you see batman standing on the edge of that enormously tall building that was christian bale wow and he didn't have any security like devices on him to hold him to the building <laughs> he just wanted to stand there and you know hats off to him i would never have done that i'm scared of heights so bad i would have 
been standing out there taking a pee on myself or something. Like, no way. Talking about being scared shitless, yeah, I, I would probably have a stroke and fall off the building. <laughs> but there was actually a, a thing there where they were going to practically have a stuntman jump off this building while being connected to a helicopter. And it was kind of like a pendulum effect so that they could actually live capture Batman when he dives off the tower in Hong Kong. Now, they weren't able to get the permission, so they weren't able to do it, but they did, you know, test and see if they could do this. So the test footage, we actually got to see of this incredible, incredibly brave stuntman, you know, diving off the building. And he's like, you know, I think this is the closest to flying that I'll ever get. I mean, yeah, I'd say so, right? Yeah, it's this guy, Buster Reeves, and they hooked him up to the to this cable he kind of jumps off the building and soars down but then while he's flying the helicopter has to move away from the building because otherwise he's going to swing right back into it where he came from so it was incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and it looked insane i mean i i wish you know i wish they could have been able to do it but doing it here in the U.S. versus doing it in Hong Kong, which is where they would have had to do it. I guess the red tape was just too much with flying, you know, helicopters in this very commercial area with a lot of tall buildings. Yeah. Well, I mean, what they did do, and I I never had any idea that this was real, at the end of the film, you know, when Batman is going into the television station building and there are the SWAT guys there that he has to subdue and he has them all like, you know, tangled up in in his his rope, you know, cable, you know, he uh, kicks one of the SWAT guys off the roof and then all the other guys go together. So that exterior shot that we see of the SWAT guys going off the roof was real. That was a real stunt. Um, those stuntmen were individually tethered. It wasn't just one, you know, strand. And they actually had mattresses on the building because when they came off, they would slam into the building. And I got to tell you, even with padding, you know, you, it didn't look very comfortable. Oh, man. <laughs> You know, it looked like to me one of the the guys actually kind of held his head after he went. Maybe it was acting. Maybe it was, you know, he was really hurt. I don't know. It was amazing. And what they found so impressive is there were stuntmen from all over the world involved in this particular stunt, which is awesome. And I have to say it's really all in line with the Dark Knight theme of teamwork. And that is with the cast. That is with the crew. Everyone wanted to work to make the absolute best possible product that they could and they fully achieved it oh yeah people that don't even like superhero movies like this film because there is so much realism in it i mean there are so many things that we deal with in the real world you know we deal with interrogation we deal with torture i mean not everyday joes but i mean you read about it you see media you know that that's all about these things it affects everyone on the planet really yeah um but yeah i think that you know that's really the achievement of this movie i think i'm sure that there are you know some detractors because there's always got to be somebody that doesn't like something but you know to have a movie like this that is about batman yeah you know when so much stuff has come with batman before you know there have been multiple batmans multiple jokers Yet, Nolan and team uh, are able to do something with this movie that is so just enduring. Yes. And there's so much to it. 
that you can keep watching it over and over again and still get something new out of it every time. You know, I think there's just something really special about that. This is a really complex movie about complex ideas and complex people. And, you know, <laughs> on top of that, the way it's shot is so well done and mm. technically proficient that, I mean, I just think that, you know, it earned its spot on the top 250 on IMDb. Yeah. Like, it earned its spot. It, it's a great movie on its own, a great standalone sequel, which, you know, yeah, it's a continuation of the story that started with Batman Begins, but this movie can stand on its own any day. I, I absolutely think so. And again, it's just because it's bringing up so many real world themes, you know, surveillance, right? That's a big thing. Everybody's concerned about privacy. You know, we, we have that in there, right? We actually, you know, have issues of jurisdiction, government, law, you know, morality, ethics, what, ethics. Like what are the limitations? You know, it's like, again, there's so many things that happen in this movie that are illegal. But since we're thinking that Batman is our good guy, we go along with it. I mean, he goes to Hong Kong to get Lao and bring him back. That is not legal. You know, I mean, it's not legal for a bunch of reasons. To begin with, number one, Batman is not part of the government. He is not part of any established organization. He is a vigilante. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, crazy. That really, you know, wraps it around that the basic questions that this movie is asking are about what's right and wrong yeah if, and if there's a way to define what's right and wrong and to me that's kind of one of the most basic questions there is you know to tackle that question is to tackle what it is to be a human and i think that's the most important thing that art can do in any form you know is ask those big big questions of morality and of ethics and of humanity and what makes us human and, and why we do the things that we do. And I, I think they do it great in this. I think that's amazing. I, I think you're absolutely right. That is an incredible point. That is an awesome way to wrap this up. I, I think with that, you know, we should come to a close with our Dark Knight episode. Yeah. I mean, it has been amazing going so deep. I mean, we've talked about so many different things. Yeah. You know, we've talked about so many different movies. You know, I, I mean, it's just such an achievement in the comic book world, in the movie world, in the technical world. You know, this is the movie that brought IMAX to, you know, regular movie going. I mean, now we, we are like, oh yeah, IMAX, cool. But this is what started it all. It's not just Pioneers. Ocean Oasis anymore. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but yeah, this this was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking this ride with us in the Tumblr. Yeah. You know, uh, we really We tumbled it. all over the damn place. We did, we did. We took a quick, like, ride on the Bat Pod, you know, like a little beach ride, you know, <laughs> at sunset, which was pretty cool, you know. Uh, you know, Georgia drove, and I was on the back. It was very <laughs> awesome, I you know. I don't know. I would be scared to drive the Bat Pod. That thing looked scary. We saw footage of, of the stunt guy driving it, and I was just like, wow, better you than me. Like, oh, yeah. 
I can't even drive a bicycle. Do you know what I mean? I gave myself a compound fracture, for Christ's sake, on a bicycle. There's no way I could drive the bat pod. Well, but... and with those huge tires, like it was impossible to steer. Yeah. But boy, does it look cool. So... Looks amazing. Looks amazing. I, you know, and they were able to practically achieve it. I mean, come on. That's what's surprising with this movie. Every single thing they did, they did it so well. Right. That it was kind of like, you know, they established it. They created the, they learned how to work it. Like, they just made everything work so well in this. And, you know, that's from the script to the stunts to everything. So, thank you for the people who made this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's the reinvention of Batman once again. In Batman 1989, we had a reinvention of the comic book film. And Batman Begins 2005, I love it. It's such a great film. And maybe someday we'll talk about that here as oh, well. Yeah. But, you know, when we came to Dark Knight in 2008, that once again completely changed the comic book landscape. Yeah, that was it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was it for us. And I think it paved the way for, like, some of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, like Winter Soldier, for yeah, example, yeah. which is one of our favorites, you know, to go to a gritty place and explore some of the big questions that we have about, you know, government and control, you know, things like that that come up. We'll probably talk about Winter Soldier, too, so I'm not going to give away the farm. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for sitting uh, here with us and talking about every possible aspect of the Dark Knight that we could come up with. It's been a major blast. Yeah. Um, we're going to be back next week. We hope to see you here back then to finish out our sequel series our straight to the sequel september series suckers <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i was looking for an s word the whole time i mean it's good. no you offense to anybody we're, we're all friends yeah <laughs> yeah we're all friends here yeah all right well uh if i can just say another s word stay comfy stay comfy everybody